Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Heike Bauer as a guest. She is Professor of Modern Literature and Cultural History and Assistant Dean at Burbeck College at the University uh, of London and author of multiple books. Today, we will discuss her most recent book entitled The Hirschfeld Archives. Violence, Death, and Modern Queer Culture. It appeared as a part of the Sexuality Studies series with the Temple University Press in 2017. Hello, Heike. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. To start, I was wondering if you could share some of your uh, professional biography. Um, So I think specifically, I would be interested to hear about the origins of your interest in the field of German studies. And then I'm also interested in the circumstances that led you to research and write this monograph. Yeah, sure. So I'm a literary scholar and a historian of sexuality and really have spent um, most of my research um, today examining this strange phenomenon of the emergence of modern sexology in the 19th century. And really this interest in sexology started way back when I was still a student and I read Ratcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness. And In that novel, the protagonist, Stephen Gordon, who is described as a female invert, she discovers a hidden stash of books in her father's library. And this includes works by two German authors, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs and Richard von Kraft-Ebing. The former, um, I later learned, is seen to be as one of the earliest homosexual rights activists. And then Richard von Kraft-Ebing was a psychiatrist and... um, an early sexologist who wrote a book called Psychopathia Sexualis. And so in Hall's novel, it becomes clear that Stephen Gordon's father had turned to these books to try and make sense of his daughter's masculinity. And Stephen's own reading of the books in turn is this moment of self-revelation where she suddenly understands herself um, in, in gendered and sexual terms, if you like. And it, it's this discovery that leads her to conclude that she's not an aberration, but that there are kind of many people just like her. So this is really powerful and complex stuff. And I was curious to find more, find out more about these sexological texts and how they made their way from German science into English literary culture. And really that research became my first monograph, which was entitled English Literary Sexology. And then I continued working on aspects relating to sexology, but really I was interested in the work of Magnus Hirschfeld, who's very well known, especially in Germany, where he's generally celebrated for his affirmative contributions to queer and trans history. But when I read around his work, I found that he also wrote quite extensively about all kinds of forms of violence against people whose bodies and desires did not match the norms of their time. So my book, The Hirschfeld Archives, really started off as a reappraisal of Hirschfeld's work. 
Um, and I was interested in what this work can tell us about the impact of anti-queer violence. And really by queer, I hear, I use the term here as a kind of critical umbrella term to include gender and sexual variation. And this is not to erase distinct histories in the book. I discuss trans, intersex, as well as homosexuality. But I want to signal that there is a shared kind of, albeit distinct, experiential dimension to living at odds with the gender and sexual norm of one's time. So the Hirschfeld archives is really prompted by the realization that violence against male homosexuality in particular has been really well documented, but we know less about the impact of this kind of violence on the emergence of a collective sense of modern homosexuality. And so working with Hirschfeld's writing was for me a way of addressing this question. Well, thank you for that answer, Heike. And you mentioned in the midst of that answer, of course, Magnus Hirschfeld, who is um, you know, the major subject of your book, and also a figure who's certainly well known to specialists in uh, German studies and the history of sexuality. In fact, I think this is the third podcast interview I've done in the last 12 months where his name has come up prominently. But in case there are any listeners who are not yet familiar with Hirschfeld, could you provide um, you know, a brief overview of his biography and historical importance? Yes, please? absolutely. So Hirschfeld was a trained doctor, and um, um, he's really best known today for his homosexual rights activism, his foundational studies um, of what he called transvestism, and his opening of the world's first Institute of Sexual Science in Berlin in 1919. He was born in a small town on the Baltic coast, but really spent most of his life in Berlin, um, but died in French exile um, in 1935. During his lifetime, he was really very well connected in international sexual reform circles. He was involved in many initiatives, including um, the campaign against paragraph 175, the law that criminalized sex between men in Germany, and then international um, organizations such as the World League for Sexual Reform. He was in some ways indebted to the work of 19th century scientists, sexual scientists such as Kraft Ebing, whom I've already mentioned. But what distinguished Hirschfeld's work is that it was overtly political aimed at sexual reform. So we might say that he dragged the sexual subject out of the clinic and courtroom and into the realms of politics and culture. Great, thanks. And just moving then from Hirschfeld, uh, the person, to uh, the person's archive, which is you know obviously another uh, major focus of this book. And the introduction to your book shares uh, the very fascinating history of Hirschfeld's archive. And I, I think that the listeners would really be interested to hear the tangled history of this uh, collection, if you're willing to share. Yes, um, it, it is a very tangled history. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hirschfeld and his colleagues at the Institute of Sexual Science gathered what we might call the first LGBTI archive, um, you know, a library full of books of scientific studies, diaries, films, photographs, paintings, and so forth. They're all aimed to document the range of genders and sexual desires. and Some of this material really was collected in clinical encounters. Other materials were come from ethnographic studies of Berlin's sexual subcultures, where Hirschfeld himself was part of 
this life with his partner, Karl Gieser. This library was destroyed in a Nazi attack in 1935, and some of the materials were then burned in the first of the infamous Nazi book burnings. But a lot of the materials also survived this attack, and today they're really significant collections in Berlin, gathered by the Hirschfeld Society and the city's Schulis Museum or Gay Museum. Um, and there are also significant collections, for example, at the Wellcome Library in London, by the Kinsey Archives in Bloomington, Indiana. There's also an interesting sort of historical footnote to um, all these developments, um, because um, Hirschfeld you know, some of the materials got lost, a lot of material still exists, and some of it um, was quite recently rediscovered. Um, in fact, in 1994, a man in Vancouver, who was living in an apartment block, um, found in the communal bin area materials um, that had been um, left there, which included a lot of writings that mentioned um, Hirschfeld, as well as a man named Tao Li. Now, Tao Li was um, a young Chinese man whom Hirschfeld had met in exile and who was his companion alongside Karl Giese during the last years of his life. And after Hirschfeld's death, Tao Li seemed to have lived in Switzerland for a time and then returned to Hong Kong. But his whereabouts after around the 1960s had been unknown until the man in Vancouver, he, he's called Adam Smith, um, until he found these papers, which turned out to have belonged to a neighbor, Tao Li, whom he had not met, but Tao Li's family had sort of left the materials out there after Tao Li's death. And Smith realized that this might be a significant find, and he posted about it in an online forum. Now, this being the early 1990s, when the internet wasn't yet such a fundamental part of life. It would actually take a few more years before Ralf Dose from the Hirschfeld Society in Berlin discovered um, a Smith's notice and Dose then arranged the purchase of these papers and they were sent to Berlin and assessed and then packaged up and were to be transported to the University of Minnesota that was um, you know, supposed to give them a permanent home. And I knew that much and tried to locate the materials in the University of Minnesota Library catalog. But there I found that they weren't listed there. And so I got in touch with the librarian, Lisa Vercoli, and she told me that when the boxes from Germany had arrived in Minnesota, they were empty. <laughs> so it's really unclear what happened or why the papers disappeared. And the only certainty we really have at this stage is that part of Hirschfeld's and Tauli's estate is once more lost. And I think it's a really fascinating episode because it illustrates so well the aspect of chance in research, that archives are subject to circumstance, the keepers of really strange knowledges which can be shaped by serendipity and unexplained events as much as by the more familiar traceable personal and financial investments or the agendas of the institutions that make it their task to select materials for um, keeping and destruction. Yeah, when reading your introduction, I found that to be such a remarkable story. Uh, so I appreciate you, uh, you elaborating on that a little bit here. And at this point, I thought maybe we could move on to uh, some of your main analytical points in the book. And so 
uh, that kind of brings us um, to a certain extent to your central argument. And uh, I want to pose two questions uh, for the for, for your next answer here. And so the first one is, I'm curious um, how you think your study complicates how we view this very f- famous figure of Magnus Hirschfeld. But I also wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way the book draws implications um, that move beyond this very impactful individual, how studying the Hirschfeld archive can draw these larger conclusions that you do in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I argue that Hirschfeld's work is really key to understanding uh, the formation of the modern homosexual rights movement in the West, including in terms of the concerns that motivated these efforts, but also crucially in relation to their limits. So many Hirschfeld scholars, um, for instance, really emphasize his contribution to the gay liberation movement, sort of casting him in the role of a pioneer of sexual freedom. And in Germany, um, his name has become a kind of shorthand for a particular kind of liberal diversity politics. For example, the German government has named an equalities foundation after Hirschfeld. And of course, it's important that we remember the significance of the early homosexual rights activists. But equally, I think we must be alert to the boundaries, I guess, of the um, homosexual rights movement, its class, racialized and gender boundaries. Um, You know, so one of the key points of the book, which Hirschfeld's work for me illuminates really well is, that a focus on homosexual rights alone wasn't necessarily tied to broader social reform efforts. And Hirschfeld's work really documents this complex history. Um, thank you. And so moving then into your first chapter, you link uh, Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, writings and activisms, uh, activism excuse me, to the colonial history of Germany. And I wonder, just before we can go into some of the connections you draw there. Uh, I was wondering if you could first just summarize the place of late 19th century colonialism in German history, uh, just in case we have listeners who don't uh, know it quite as well. Yeah, I mean, briefly, um, what is interesting is that compared to other colonial colonizing nations, Germany's official reign as a colonial power was relatively short. It lasted from 1889 to 1919. This history is really closely tied into the history of the formation of the modern German states when, which really, you know, as you know, only came into existence in 1871 when two dozen or so independent states joined political forces. And this new German empire had expansion ambitions. It wanted to compete with other major colonial powers such as England and so, you know, a, a navy was established and um, really um, a series of colonies and so-called protectorates, Schutzgebiete, on the African continent, the South Sea and China, um, were colonized by Germany in quite a short period of time. I guess the next step then is saying what did Hirschfeld have to do with colonialism, right? I think this is one of your, uh, one of your uh, kind of uh, original uh, viewpoints here. So uh, how then did colonialism shape Hirschfeld? And what does that tell us about his views on race and racism? Yeah, that's a very good question. And one I often um, get asked um, when I present on, on Hirschfeld. 
Um, I think it's significant that Hirschfeld came of age professionally during the German colonial period. He didn't directly partake in the colonial expansion efforts as an administrator or soldier or any of these things, but his career unquestionably benefited from it. For example, through the investment in the sciences, including medical research at the time, um, Hirschfeld himself um, came in contact with soldiers um, who fought colonial wars. Um, For example, um, he supported um, a soldier who had returned from the war Germany had waged against the indigenous people of Southwest Africa, which was a very traumatic experience and it's it's a it was a war of annihilation um that caused devastation great devastation in uh, what is now known as namibia hirschfeld also um you know provided expert testimony in the trial in of a man who was tried for homosexuality in a german colony robert dean tobin has written about this important case. So we know that Hirschfeld not only knew of the existence of German colonialism, but that he knew of the atrocities committed by the colonial powers. And so I was really struck by the fact that he remained silent in the face of this violence. I don't think we can ignore his silence. I was recently asked how Hirschfeld's work might have changed if he had acknowledged colonial violence, But in some ways, I don't even think that's the key question. Um, I think it is more interesting to focus on what we might call his apprehensive blind spots, that he didn't, while he was interested in questions of class and gender inequality, for example, um, race was not really on his radar at the time. German colonialism itself, I think, was for a long time ignored by historians of homosexuality in Germany and scholars I think have tended to assume that Hirschfeld wasn't in favor of colonialism and generally these views are based on his late work he did write a study a critique of racism which was entitled Der Rassismus Racism um, and published posthumously Hirschfeld only wrote this um, study right at the end of his own life when he suffered from Nazi persecution. And the work is really shaped by his own experience of the extreme anti-Semitism of the time. It is very interesting in that it includes a proto-constructivist critique of race and aspects of that still resonate with some debates today. I think it's a mistake to simply read this late work back onto his earlier life. So I'm arguing that it's important to acknowledge his silences around race, racism and colonial violence because they tell us something about the apprehensive limits of modern homosexual rights debate at the point when these debates first started to take shape. Yeah, and that's uh, an interesting way to, uh, I guess, uh, you know, complicate how we study and, uh, you know, remember both Hirschfeld and uh, this larger movement. Um, So uh, moving on then to your second chapter, Um, this is a chapter that analyzes the role of suicide uh, in queer culture during the Weimar era. Now, you actually observe that Hirschfeld switched from practicing general medicine to sexology 
is a result of a suicide by a gay military officer on the eve of his wedding. And I've actually uh, heard that fact, that story narrated elsewhere as well. Um, But I was wondering if you could share some of your conclusions about the collective experience of queer suicide and violent death as explained in this section of your book. Yeah, I think this was in many ways a difficult chapter to write, not least because of the pernicious persistence of the stereotype of queer life as somehow inevitably unlivable, miserable, lonely and isolated. And obviously, I think it's really important to counter such a negative view and affirmative same-sex history has done that very successfully. But then at the same time, I think we also need to acknowledge and reckon with the full range of queer experiences, as Heather Love, for example, has argued um, in her book, Feeling Backwards. Um, And so what I found in Hirschfeld's work is that he gathered what we might call the first statistical data on homosexual suicides. He believed that it was important to bring into public consciousness the suffering of those who felt that their life was unlivable because of their sexual desires. And these efforts were not just scientific. So he he did questionnaires and the like to find out about, that, to collect data on homosexual suicide and suicidal feeling. But in 1919, he also collaborated on a film entitled Anders as the Andern or Different from the Others, And this film problematized the problems caused by paragraph 175, the law that left um, homosexual men open to blackmail, prompting some of them um, to take their own life, including the protagonist of Anders as the Undone. The film is really interesting because it suggests that these apparently individual tragedies, suicide is, of course, in some ways a deeply individual Um, phenomenon. And it's very difficult to draw larger um, conclusions around it. But the film suggests that these individual tragedies actually did have a larger impact. So it opens with the lead character reading the newspapers at breakfast, and he can see report after report of apparently unexplained suicides of men. And from his reaction, it's really clear that he understands these deaths as the suicides of men like him who felt that their lives were no longer viable. So the argument I make is that news about such suicides had an effective impact on men who loved other men and that they also added to a a sense of collective identification so that it isn't just the burgeoning positive representations of and the growing queer culture of around 1900 that helped shape how uh, that helped shape modern homosexual culture, but th- these negative experiences also left an impact. And in the case of Hirschfeld, they directly motivated his po- political actions. Great. And also in this chapter, you bring up uh, the death of Oscar Wilde. Now. Oscar Wilde is a a very famous cultural figure with whom many of our listeners are likely acquainted. Um, But it's usually the impact of his trial that is most well known. And the reception of his death uh, is not so much a part of popular consciousness, which is something you point out in the chapter. So I was wondering, how do you connect Oscar Wilde uh, to your narrative in this book, into, into Hirschfeld, into the German context? 
Yeah, Hirschfeld, uh, Wilde's death, uh, sorry, um, is um, really interesting. I mean, he died in 1900, not long after his release from Reading Jail, we had, where he had served a two-year sentence of hard labour for gross indecency with other men. And of course, the Wilde trial is really well documented. It is um, seen to have introduced the modern homosexual to English culture, but also well beyond. I mean, it was reported in many countries, including Germany. Reception of Wilde's death, however, has received less attention. And so I was really intrigued to find Hirschfeld's writing about the death of Oscar Wilde. And specifically, I found um, an account of Wilde's death, a sort of roundabout, tragic way, um, account in um, a narrative Hirschfeld published about a visit to Cambridge in the early 20th century, And there he notes that he had met a group of young male students who had gathered to read Wilde's prison poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, together. And he says that these young men symbolically marked their allegiance to Wilde by attaching his prisoner number to their shirts while reading out the poem. And for me, this is a really interesting example because it supports the point that death as much as um, increased positive representation shaped a collective same-sex identity at the time. So here, Wilde's memorialization suggests that his tragic death, as much as his celebrated life, helped shape a sense of queer community. I would um, say at this point, I'd like to skip ahead a little bit in the book. And I want to skip ahead to your chapter on Hirschfeld's Institute of Sexual Science in Berlin. And uh, that institute's tragic tragic end. Now, I think uh, this uh, institute is probably the thing for which Hirschfeld is most famous. It gets depicted sometimes in popular culture. And certainly I know I often bring up Hirschfeld in the institute when I'm teaching about Weimar Germany and so forth. Um, So I was wondering if you could first explain uh, the nature of this institute, uh, you know, during the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, I mean, the Institute was in many ways a really extraordinary space, um, founded in the immediate aftermath of World War I in 1919. It aimed to provide a space for research, teaching, healing and refuge, as Hirschfeld put it. Um, It had kind of wider social reform aspiration. It aimed to free the individual from physical ailments, psychological affliction, social deprivation. Um, It really quickly became a meeting place for queer and trans people, but it also opened its doors to the general public. And um, in particular, it was well known as um, a place for marriage counselling and sex education. Many of the Institute's practitioners were Jewish, so when the Nazis came to power, the Institute was one of their first points of attack. So on a Saturday in May 1933, when Hirschfeld himself was already in exile, Nazi students entered the institute and began to destroy its interior. And they were joined in due course by SA men who helped them load much of the material from the library onto the trucks. And this was then publicly burned four days later. There is some critical consensus today that it was precisely the institute's association with both homosexuality and Jewishness that made it the focus of Nazi attack. And obviously, it's not difficult um, to agree with this point. 
But while the Institute was thriving during the 20s, it really had an international reputation that brought in, um, as I said, queer and trans people from around the world, but also um, members of Berlin's public um, and many scientists, um, especially perhaps some countries such as Japan, which had strong um, research links with Germany at the time. I'd also like to ask about um, two very famous historical figures from abroad who you uh, discuss when talking about the history of the Institute. Uh, Those two figures are Margaret Sanger and Christopher Isherwood. Um, So much like Oscar Wilde figures into one of the earlier chapters here, you have um, famous figures from uh, Britain and the United States figuring into your story. So I was wondering if you could uh, discuss uh, how what these two individuals wrote shapes what we know about the Institute for Sexual Science. Sure, yeah. I guess we could say that Sanger's and Isherwood's work um, helped to keep alive the memory of the Institute. But it's also fair to say that so many other accounts exist that it may be reductive to single them out. What is interesting is, though, that their responses to the um, Institute tell um, an interesting story of the different kinds of reception of the Institute's work. So Isherwood wrote about it in the um, biographical account of his time in Berlin, Christopher and his kind. And here he claimed that coming face-to-face with the Institute's collections brought him face-to-face with his own tribe. It made it, gave him a kind of sense of belonging. And I think there's almost an echo to the well of loneliness here in that Isherwood finds affirmation and community in the sexual archive. For Sanger, this was a rather different uh, matter. She had a much more conservative view, and in her autobiography, she very much emphasizes the institutes that the institute was a place where gender and sexual deviancies could be fixed. I.e., she interpreted the institute as a place that returned deviant people to normality. And in some ways, it has to be said. Um, Isherwood's um, view of the Institute has become much more influential and maybe describes a little bit better what was going on um, at at the Institute at the time. So uh, continuing on with uh, our discussion in the Institute, and I know that your analysis uh, in the book of the Institute is very rich and it's really impossible to touch on everything in the context of this interview. Obviously, we have to save some things for the people who read the book. But um, I wonder if you could give our listeners just a taste of the chapter by talking about the extent to which the Institute provided a transgender space. And in doing so, I also wonder if you could describe Hirschfeld's ideas about what he called uh, sexual intermediaries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a very big question, as you say, but really the Institute played a really important role in early transgender history It provided people with access to the latest medical technologies, so-called sex umwandlungen or sex change operations were performed at the Institute. Um, Hormonal research was conducted. And in a different vein, it also helped um, um, people whose gender um, didn't match um, their bodies. It issued so-called transvestite passes to people born with male bodies who wanted to wear female dress in public. And 
these passes could then be shown to the police and hence prevent the person from being arrested. So there was real kind of um, investment here and, and support here. And then last but not least, the Institute also um, um, employed transgender people um, as maids specifically. And the most famous example of this is Dora or Deutschen, as she was also known, um, who underwent various sex, uh, various surgeries at the Institute between the early 1920s and the early 1930s. Um, her doctor was called Ludwig Levi-Lenz, and he wrote in his memoirs that the Institute did everything it could to support people like Dora, who might find it difficult to get employment. Dora worked at the Institute until the Nazi raid in 1933. Uh, as far as I know, her fate is yet to be discovered, and we don't have a record of her own voice. Um, but um, we certainly know from others that she lived and worked at the Institute for a very long time. You also asked me about um, Hirschfeld's famous sexual intermediaries, and um, that's a really distinct concept um, that he was very invested in. It's distinct from other existing sex gender vocabulary of the time. Broadly, it refers to the idea that there exist infinite variations in gender in, sex in sexual desire rather than just the binary. So Hirschfeld argued that these um, variations in desires, bodies, gender expression could be infinite and that the intersections between them similarly were limitless. So this is, a, for many people, still a very attractive idea today. You know, I absolutely cannot uh, let our discussion of your book end without having you talk about the fate of Magnus Hirschfeld's bust. Um, and while uh, much of this institute was tragically destroyed by the Nazis, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, it seems that his bust survived. So I was wondering if you could share this story, um, as well as uh, sort of the broader meaning of this story of, of Hirschfeld's bust. Oh, yes. Um, so the bust, um, I think a more speculative approach to history is needed to understand the fate of this queer object, if you like. So basically, Hirschfeld was presented with a bronze bust of his own head on his 60th birthday in 1928. And the bust was made by a Jewish sculptor called Eisenstein, and it was then out on display at the Institute of Sexual Science. The Nazis removed it from there during their raid and then paraded it through the streets of Berlin. It was staked high on a stake, so very um, um, symbolic um, um, imagery here. There's an account um, um, of, these incident, of the incident by Erich Kessner, the famous writer, and also a single really blurry photograph survives of the bust being paraded through the streets of Berlin by these Nazi men. And what happened next isn't 100% clear. Historians think that the bust was thrown onto the book bonfire, but that it survived because the flames were simply not hot enough to melt bronze. One story goes that the bust was found the day after the bonfire by a street cleaner who took it home and kept it safe until the end of the Second World War, although this account might be apocryphal, we don't know really. But the symbolism of the event and the surviving actual evidence nevertheless makes the bust, I think, a really evocative queer object. 
Um, it illustrates the paradoxical history of violence and survival that shape modern career life. So at this point, uh, I think we've taken up uh, a good amount of your time. Um, but we usually end the interview with uh, the interviews at the New Books Network with uh, uh, the same final question. And that is, uh, what are you working on now, Heike? <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm really excited about my new project, actually. Um, it somehow takes my work in a new direction, although it certainly remains sort of framed in terms of queer history. So I'm working on a project that examines the emergence of the modern concept of the dangerous dog. And so in the 21st century, in England in particular, it's really difficult to get away from this idea that the dangerous dog is a breed-specific beast, breed-specific location in the UK, um, introduced in the 1990s, um, really focuses on this idea of, you know, the distinct type of dangerous dog. And despite really strong opposition and a wealth of evidence against um, this legislation, um, the idea that there's a distinct type of dangerous dog has really taken firm hold in the popular imagination. And in my project, I examine where this idea comes from and what really motivates the debates that surround it. And so I turn to the 19th century to um, um, you know, examine debates at the time when dog legislation was first introduced. And the new laws were really deeply controversial and um, in, you know, enmeshed from the outset in really inflammatory debates about human bodies that were marked as dangerous by poverty, deprivation, foreigners. So in the project, I examine this history, um, but then I also seek to move beyond the treatment of canines as mere metaphors for human concerns. And one of the overtly queer elements of the project is that I examine the lives of certain historical dogs um, uh, to complicate and enrich our understanding of the queer past, for example, by revealing surprising insights into the connections between the worlds of dog showing and modern Suffolk cultures. And I'm really excited to be traveling to um, um, William and Mary College in Virginia and sometime over the next few months to conduct research in their outstanding collection on the history of dogs. Well, that, that really sounds like uh, uh, an interesting new project, Heike. So thank you for uh, sharing that with us. And um, I uh, really just uh, want to thank you for giving us your time today. And uh, I really appreciate you agreeing to be on the show today. And of course, what our listeners don't know that uh, the two of us know is that we uh, did this once before and we had a recording problem with the technology. So I really um, I'm deeply grateful that you uh, agreed to do the interview uh, a second time with me. So uh, uh, my thanks f- uh, for your willingness to come on the show, Heike. Well, and thank you to you. And thank you for having me and letting me discuss my work. Thanks very much, Michael. Great. Um, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Heike Bauer. We discussed her recent book, The Hirschfeld Archives, Violence, Death, and Modern Queer Culture, published by Temple University Press in 2017. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to listen.